Howdy, y'all. This is Ken Wise, host of Wise About Texas. Before we get started with episode 50, I want to dedicate this episode to my friend Steve Haley. Steve was a lawyer in Brenham, Texas. He grew up in Houston, graduated from Texas A&M University, where he was a Ross volunteer. Steve was also an avid Texas historian as well as an actor. You would often see him at Washington on the Brazos portraying Sam Houston, and he did a great performance as Temple Houston, which combined both his acting and his courtroom skills. Steve passed away in February 2018, and he will be sorely missed. Godspeed, Steve Haley. This 50th episode of Wise About Texas is dedicated to you. Howdy, and welcome to episode 50 of Wise About Texas. I appreciate you tuning in for some Texas history. I cannot believe this is the 50th episode of this podcast. I want to begin this episode by telling you why it took a little extra time to get this particular episode produced and out the door. And the reason is a good one. Thanks to all the supporters through Patreon of this podcast, I've been able to totally upgrade the studio where I do this podcast. The studio is also known as my home study. Um, I got a new microphone, new mixing board, new cables, and everything is installed and running, so I'd love your feedback on the audio quality. Hopefully it's a little bit better. And uh, as I've said before, Wise About Texas is a one-man show, so I'm also the audio engineer, the producer, and uh, I'm always working on that audio, trying to get it good for your ears. Well, I want to take this opportunity to answer a couple of questions that I've gotten repeatedly over the course of the first 50 episodes of that podcast. And the first thing I want to answer is the, the obvious question, why did you start this Wise About Texas? Well, as I mentioned in the introduction episode that I did when I launched, Texas history is so unique. Texas, the state, is unique, as we all know. But the history is very unique, and I think that the history shaped the state of Texas almost more than any other place that I know of. And it's not just the Texas history stories that I love so much, but it's the values that are embodied within those stories and the accomplishments of everyone who has played such a significant role in Texas history. Now, they haven't always been good guys. Some have been uh, a little rough, but we'll, and we've had conflict uh, along the way. But I'll tell you what, the uh, they shaped a place that is truly like no other. And I want to preserve it, and I want to promote it, and I want to keep Texas a little bit different than any other state. The other question that I get all the time is how long does it take to do one of these episodes, or somebody will make the comment about how long it must take to do these episodes, and you're right. Uh, it depends, of course, on the story that I'm telling in the particular episode, and of course it depends on how much information is available surrounding that story. One of the things that I've learned over the course of this podcast is uh, trying to learn what to leave out to make a good story of all the possible research that you can do, and also learning what to put in to make the story interesting so it's not just a recitation of a bunch of historical facts. And that's a little bit of an art. Hopefully I'm getting better at it. Um, but I told you in the introduction episode I do not use Wikipedia, and I certainly do not. But there, uh, that begs the other question that I get all the time is what sources are you using for these episodes? Well, they're all over the map, um, sometimes literally maps. Uh, the first place I go often are the books in my own personal library. 
and I've got several hundred books related to Texas history and culture, and I will often find some great sources in those books. Um, I try to go to the scholarship on Texas history that's out there. You can find much of it, but not all of it online. I'm a member of the Texas State Historical Association. It publishes the Southwestern Historical Quarterly. If you go back in that journal, the decades that it's been published, you find some great articles on uh, almost every aspect of Texas history. Another source that I use a lot are newspapers at the time of the events uh, that are occurring that I'm discussing. And thankfully, you can find lots of that online, too. If I use another historical text, a book or an article, I always go to the cited sources within that article. I don't just use the article and read from it, or sometimes I'll quote uh, from certain articles, but I always try to go to the original source if I can find it uh, that that article mentioned when it was written. Now, there's a difference between a Texas history book that just tells stories and a Texas history book that has footnoted sources. And uh, the ones with the footnoted sources um, tend to be the ones that I use more often. And I, again, I always try to go directly to the source that is cited. Well, that all of that takes time. And um, I have a list of, of in-progress episodes that I'm doing. And if I'm somewhere in the state where I think I'm going to find some material on those episodes, I'll take um, some extra time and go look. Uh, I go to Austin quite a bit in connection with my job as a judge, and I always seem to spend at least a little bit of time in the state archives while I'm there. I always try to go to local libraries and look and see what they have for Texas history. So uh, it does take a lot of time, and I try to balance the episodes between ones that um, take a lot more research and ones that you can produce fairly quickly. Uh, my own internal sort of deadline is every couple of weeks, and uh, longtime listeners of this show will know that I make that most of the time, but not all the time. I do think it's more important to be good than to be quick. Let me update you right quick on the statistics in connection with this podcast. Those of you listening are joining over 165,000 downloaders in 85 countries. Interestingly, the second highest number of downloads for this podcast over the history of the podcast have occurred in the country of Japan, and I, I find that fascinating. So any of you listeners who are listening to this in Japan, please send me an email at host at wiseabouttexas. Tell me how you found it and how you're listening. Um, the listeners have really made this worth every effort that I've put into it. I've built a great community around this podcast. I continue to receive uh, lots of good feedback, lots of great suggestions for episodes. I've learned a lot. I've found some places in the state where historical events occurred that I didn't previously know about, thanks to the listeners. So keep that coming. All right, well, we're at the 50th episode, and I thought the 50th episode should be something special. And there's one topic that has been near and dear to my heart for many years, and it's one that I haven't started on Wise About Texas because I was really trying to find a way to do it justice. Well, it's time. Growing up in Texas, you get exposed to so many things that just don't exist other places. I covered some of that recently in episode 47 about the San Antonio Chili Queens. That's something that just you're not going to find anywhere else. Well, one of the aspects of Texas that is very unique has to do with our law enforcement. Texas has an organization that was born originally of necessity. Almost 200 years ago, before Texas was even Texas, 
there began a law enforcement organization like no other. It has remained unique among law enforcement agencies really around the world. And it's been unique. Every year it's existed, 2018 is no different. I'm talking, of course, of the Texas Rangers. So for this episode 50, I'm going to begin what will no doubt be many, many episodes about the most unique law enforcement agency in the world, the legendary Texas Rangers. Now, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because for a long time I thought maybe my career path might take me into the Rangers. God had other plans for me, as he so often does for all of us. But when I was sworn in as a district judge in 2002, I really had kind of met my goal of serving the state of Texas. And it ends up I got to know a lot of and even work with some of the current Texas Rangers, although I was working in a different capacity than I had anticipated. Over the years, I've made many, many good friends in the Rangers, and that's going to make for some interesting upcoming episodes. We need to start somewhere, and it's often helpful to start at the very beginning. So let's get back to very early times in Texas to begin our discussion of the Texas Rangers. Now, the concept of a ranger has been around for several hundred years. In medieval times, there were people referred to as rangers. They spelled it a little bit differently, and they were really acting as game wardens for the king. They would manage the estates and keep away the trespassers and the poachers. Um, later, in the 1700s, in the United States, uh, we had rangers. We had a troop of what were called Highland Rangers in Georgia in the 1730s. Probably the most famous early ranger in the United States was the group called Rogers Rangers. They fought in the French and Indian War in the 1750s. And all of these units were developed when it was discovered that the traditional methods of warfare up to that point were not going to be useful in the given situation. The Spanish discovered that in a similar way in their province of Coahuila Tejas, And the Spanish, of course, you remember how they decided to handle the Indians that were dwelling in Texas. They decided they would set up several missions and attempt to convert the Indians to Christianity. And they sort of assumed that once the Indians learned to live a settled lifestyle and learned agriculture and converted to Christianity, that they would stop uh, running all over the country and and, uh, causing problems for the settlers. Of course, that did not work. In fact, it failed spectacularly. So the Spanish learned that they were going to have to fight these Indians, and they were not having very much success until they developed a unit that were called flying companies. What was happening was that the Indians would go around wherever the forts were built fairly easily. And so the Spanish figured out that they needed to start taking the fight to the Indians. They couldn't just sit back. And uh, the flying companies were born, and that worked a lot better. So let's fast forward a little bit to when uh, our Texas history started in the early 1820s. Now recall that Stephen F. Austin uh, was attempting to carry out his father Moses Austin's plan of colonizing Texas. And between 1821 and 1828, Stephen F. Austin had settled approximately 1,200 families in Texas. Um, But that process was not an easy one. So let's go back and see more of what Stephen F. Austin encountered when he first came to Texas. And and the way I want to do this is I want to take some of Stephen F. Austin's own letters that he wrote at the time and see what he said about what he had found. First letter I want to tell you about is was written in March of 1822, and he wrote it to his brother James. 
and Stephen F. Austin is writing this letter while in Laredo. The first line of the letter talks about the Indians, and, and Austin recounts how uh, he was on the Nueces River with two other men, and 50 Comanches rode up on him. Um, now, the two other men were away from camp gathering horses. Austin was alone. Little did he know at the time they had captured those other two men, the Indians had. But uh, when they rode up on Austin, Austin writes as follows, quote, I then expostulated with them for treating their friends, the Americans, in such a manner. When they found there were no Spaniards with me, they gave us back our saddlebags, saddles, and everything else except four blankets, a bridle, my grammar, and several other little things, and all our provisions. Nothing saved our lives but being Americans, close quote. Now, I thought that letter was very interesting. A couple of interesting things about his encounter on the Nueces. One is that the Indians took his grammar. Now, what that was was a Spanish dictionary. And there are several accounts through the years of the Comanche Indians in particular taking books away. That would be something that they would keep. Well, it wasn't for reading, although that Spanish dictionary might have proved of some use had they been able to read it. What they were doing with these books is they would rip the pages out and they would stick the pages between the layers of leather in their shield and it would make their shields harder to penetrate. Another interesting thing in, from this encounter that Austin had was that the Indians took all of the food and they would count that as fair because, you know, life's hard and everybody's on their own, so it's your responsibility to find whatever food you can. And so they wouldn't have thought twice about leaving Austin and the men without any food. They also kept the blankets, which would have been very useful, and one bridle, which also would have been useful because the Comanches at this time were horseback. Well, Austin wrote, finished up that letter by saying he was not going to leave again until he could be in the company of more men because the next Indians would not be as polite. So Austin thought those Indians were fairly polite. Now, here's the most striking thing about this encounter, according to Austin. He uses the word expostulated, which I think, uh, which means to scold, and I think that word is not used nearly enough. So uh, you might see that in a couple of legal opinions coming out of the 14th Court of Appeals. Anyway, I think um, he actually fussed at the Indians. He confronted them. And he also points out that because they were Americans, they were spared. And what he means, of course, is that they were Anglo. And he implies that the Indians were looking for Spaniards, not for Anglos. So keep that in mind when you think about the history of the Indian Wars. Well, word of this situation in Texas was getting back to Missouri. Stephen F. Austin's mother in Missouri wrote him in 1822, and she asked him about the Indians because information had come to her that his whole colony had been attacked. Now, by the time the information got to Missouri, who, who knows how inflated it had been. But she also stated that she did not believe the information because it had not been in the newspaper. So think about that. Because it had not been in the newspaper, it couldn't have been true. Uh, times sure have changed, haven't they? Well, Austin wrote another letter in May 1822, and he wrote it to Anastasio Bustamante, who at that time was called the Captain General of the Internal Provinces of Mexico. So he was the one with whom Stephen F. Austin was dealing to some degree. And he, he initially favored Austin, and he favored all of the Anglo immigration. And Austin is writing to Bustamante to discuss the Indian attacks that occurred on Austin and his settlers. 
And Austin is of the opinion in this letter that one of the reasons that the Indians are upset is because of what Austin refers to as the Revolution of 1812. And what he was talking about was the Gutierrez-McGee expedition, which we will certainly cover in a future episode. And that was a failed attempt at revolution by some Mexicans and some Americans. And they were trying to overthrow the Mexican government in Texas. It did not work. And after that incident, or after that really series of battles, almost a war, many of the revolutionaries had settled in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and they were trading horses with the Comanche Indians. Now, Austin contended that this trade encouraged further Indian depredation on the native Spaniards, now Mexicans, to supply the rogue American traders. Austin went on to tell Bustamante that he had an idea to stop this trade, and he thought there were three routes that the Comanches were using to trade these horses and that two of them could be shut down by the military. He said that, uh, told Bustamante, if they'd put a garrison of soldiers at Nacogdoches and another one at, at a place called Pecan Point, which is up on the Red River in North Texas, that that would prevent the trade up those routes. The third route was uh, a situation where the Comanches would run the horses up the Kansas River to the Missouri River, and he thought that they could stop that by getting the United States to invoke its laws against trading with nations that were at war with allies of the United States. In other words, Austin's argument was that the United States and Mexico were allies, which they were at the time, so by trading with the Comanches, any Americans doing that are actually fitting out the Comanches to make war on Mexico, a U.S. ally. Now, Austin uh, made a little legal mistake in his argument um, because he misunderstood the notion of the Comanches conducting war as an entire nation. The Comanche political structure was really a series of autonomous bands and for the longest time, really almost till the end of fighting with the Comanche, we did not figure that out. Uh, treaties would be made with one band, and somebody would think that that band spoke for all Comanches and that there was communication about that treaty, et cetera, among the Comanches, and they would learn the hard way that they were sorely mistaken. But Austin thought, uh, thought that at the time and thought that that was a, a way to make it work. He also... Um, said that his plan would be bolstered if the Comanches could be provided with an avenue to get their goods, because otherwise they were going to continue to steal them. And Austin also said in this letter to Bustamante that another important way that this plan could work would be to allow Austin to settle even more families in Texas. So uh, Austin took the opportunity to advocate uh, for his interest as an impresario as well. Um, he thought that if the trading system with the Comanches was put into place and um, strengthening the militia among his settlers and increasing these settlers uh, could keep the peace with the Comanches, he thought that would work. Well, Austin, as well as everyone else coming to Texas, had a lot to learn about Comanches. About a year after that entreaty to Bustamante, about May 1823, Austin wrote another letter to Felipe de la Garza, who was the Mexican military commander at the time, and he asked de la Garza this question, quote, whether I can or cannot make war against the hostile Indians and to what extent, close quote. So obviously, a year after Austin's first suggestion, his peace policy had not been 
working very well at all. Well, then uh, we come to the famous letter to the colonists that Austin wrote in August 1823. Austin writes as follows, quote, I have determined to augment at my own private expense the company of men which was raised by order of the late Governor Trespalachos for the defense of the colony against hostile Indians. I therefore by these presents give public notice that I will employ ten men in addition to those employed by the government to act as rangers for the common defense, close quote. And the Texas Rangers were born. But wait a minute. What about the folks fighting the Indians up until then? Weren't they ranging as well? Well, it's that August letter from Austin that is considered the first time that we know of that the word ranger was used in a document about the origins of Texas. So many people use this August 1823 date as the beginning of the official Texas Rangers. Well, the truth is that after Mexico won independence, much of the military, the Mexican military, was withdrawn from Texas. So the colonists that were coming in prior to 1823 had to defend themselves. Now, most of the time, the Indians they were dealing with were not, thankfully, the Comanche, at least not yet. But they did contend with the Karankawa, the Tonkaway, and other tribes. Now, the Tonkaway is the way I say it. And the, way, the reason I say it that way is because that's the way that Robert Duvall's character, Gus McRae, said it in Lonesome Dove. And if it's good enough for Lonesome Dove, it's good enough for Wise About Texas. So we're going to say Tonkaway. Um, that Mexican governor, Tres Palacios, in 1822, created two districts for the colonists, one for the Brazos colonists and one for the colonists on the Colorado. And they were authorized to elect an alcalde, which is um, sort of a mayor or sheriff or judge, depending on the capacity in which the alcalde is acting. And they were also allowed to elect a militia captain and a lieutenant. So that time after Mexican independence, uh, when the settlers were having to deal with these Indians, the, the Mexicans knew that they were going to have to authorize them to fight to some degree. And so they were authorized to set up their own government to a limited extent. In the Brazos district, Josiah Bell was the alcalde. And if you go all the way back to episode one of Wise About Texas, uh, we talked about Josiah Bell. His militia captain was Samuel Gates. His lieutenant was Gibson Kirkendall. Kirkendall is a very famous name in Texas history, and it's spelled K-U-Y-K-E-N-D-A-L-L, pronounced Kirkendall. For the Colorado district, the alcalde was a man named John Tumlinson, Robert Kirkendall uh, was the captain, and Moses Morrison was the lieutenant. Tumlinson was further authorized by Governor Trace Palacios to raise a company of 15 men to fight the Indians. He managed to get nine men together who provided their own equipment. Well, the idea that the uh, Indian fighter in this case, or the law enforcement officer, would provide their own equipment is very much a Texas Ranger phenomenon and, and held true through the years of the Rangers. So this group looked an awful lot like Texas Rangers at the time. Uh, Tumlinson, unfortunately, was killed in 1823 by the Indians, and his son, John Tumlinson, Jr., uh, took over in his role as Ranger. Now, later in 1823 and in early 1824, uh, Stephen F. Austin himself headed the militia at the behest of the Mexican authorities, and as the head of the colony, he also published some criminal laws 
and authorized the local alcaldes or militia officers to pursue criminals, to not only serve as military, but to pursue criminals. Well, that seems a lot like ranger duty to me. Uh, The Texans also started to learn a little more about how to fight the Indians. They were learning that they needed to take the fight to the Indians, but of course the colony was expanding, so that made the horses way more important to cover the greater distances that the Comanches, at least, had already figured out how to cover. Uh, But they learned uh, many times the hard way. They were not going to be able to just build forts and sit back and uh, wait for hostiles to challenge them, assuming that that would not be the normal state of affairs. What they were going to have to do was always be on offense, and the only way to prevent the attack was to go out and find hostile Indians uh, before the attack happened. Over the summer of 1824, uh, Stephen F. Austin organized several moves against the hostile Indians um, to challenge them and, in the words of the 1800s, chastise them. Um, By late 1824, we had the original 300 families that Austin settled arrived in Texas, so the old 300 were present. Forward to 1827, Austin authorized a group of eight men under a gentleman named Abner Kirkendall to, quote, range the country between the Colorado and the Brazos on the San Antonio Road, close quote. So this, this group under Kirkendall is considered by many to be the first actual group of Texas Rangers. And the reason I say it that way is that the Rangers that Austin talked about in the August 1823 letter there was no, no evidence that those rangers were ever employed or ever uh, that they ever served, even though that's the Austin said they would. Uh, so a lot of people use this 1827 group as the first official Texas rangers. But truth be told, rangers are really more about their function, not their form. And as you'll learn in upcoming episodes, uh, some people performing what can clearly be called Texas ranger functions were not technically Texas Rangers. And if you talk to um, academic historians in Texas, there's a lot of discussion about who was and was not a Texas Ranger. Uh, One episode I'm already working on are are what's called McNelly's Rangers in the late 1800s, but they were not actually uh, Texas Rangers. They were a special unit with a different name, but they functioned as Rangers, were paid by the state, etc. So there's there's some um, argument about the technical details, but the truth is that ranging uh, companies that ranged uh, were certainly rangers, no matter what technically they might have been called. So back to Austin's colony, it grew, other colonies came in, the Texas population was growing, and then we all know what began to happen. The Mexicans realized they had probably made a mistake and they desired to constrict all of the immigration that was occurring, and so they passed the law of 1830 and said no more immigration. Um, At that point, the colonists began discussing revolution, and the Texas Revolution itself began to take shape. But what did not change was the conduct of the Indians toward the settlers. So that problem still existed. Now fast forward to 1835. In 1835, in the permanent council, there were discussions of forming what would be called ranger districts. And in October, November, and December of 1835, there were several ranging expeditions northeast of San Felipe. And that's kind of where the action was happening at the time. 
in November of 1835, the General Council, and I remember the General Council, the Permanent Council, these were various forms of pre-revolutionary government that existed. If you go back to episode 34 of this podcast, we talked about those different kinds of governments. In November 1835, it was the General Council. They passed something called a Military Ordinance Act, which authorized a standing army. Of course, there were no members of the army, but it authorized the army. Sam Houston was appointed the commander uh, without any army to command. The militia still existed, uh, but the General Council also created what was called a Corps of Rangers. And so that act by the General Council was the first official legislation, even though the Texas Revolution hadn't been won. Uh, but this revolutionary government passed the official legislation uh, regarding units known by name as Rangers. Now, many historians will refer to Robert Coleman as the first Ranger captain. Coleman was born in Kentucky. He came to Texas in 1831. In 1835, he led a group of 25 men up the Brazos River and fought a group of Tawakini Indians in what is now Limestone County. And the reason he sometimes is called the first captain is that one of the early laws passed by the Texas Congress, and this would have been December 1836 in Columbia, which is where the first Congress met, um, said that they were going to, the state was going to pay all men active in the ranging service since July 1835, and that would have been Robert Coleman on that 1835 expedition. So the legislature says anybody serving in the ranging service, and and what they meant was serving as rangers, not as a member of any particular unit, uh, since July 1835 would be paid. And so that legislation uh, can also be said to give rise to the Texas Rangers since that's the first time that the legislature decided they were going to pay him. And if you'll notice, what they were doing was they were recognizing the effectiveness and necessity of all that uh, warfare that had gone on mainly north of San Felipe uh, by men acting as rangers. Another first occurred in early 1836, and this was while the Texas Revolution was in full swing. Uh, Several ranging companies organized, and John Tumlinson Jr., who I mentioned earlier, actually organized one of these. And it was during this time that the Comanches started to be more of a factor. Uh, The colonies had expanded westward, which also uh, contributed to the revolutionary fervor, but they had also gone north up the Colorado River. Now, the Colorado River was important because that river ran through the heart of the Comanche territory, the Comancheria. And so as the colony started expanding up the Colorado River, uh, those settlers started to learn what the people in South Texas and West Texas already knew about how uh, tough the Comanches were. Well, in January 1836, John Tumlinson uh, ran into a white woman whose family had been wiped out near a creek in what would have been present-day Lavaca County. Lavaca County is south of I-10, the county seat's Hallettsville. And Tumlinson found the trail of those Indians, and he chased them all the way to Walnut Creek, northwest of present-day Austin. Tumlinson and his group recovered a captive son of the lady they had found, and they killed for the Comanche. Now, this incident on Walnut Creek is regarded as the first fight between Comanches and Rangers. And that, of course, is very significant because for the next 40 years or so, the Texas Rangers and the Comanches would fight all over the state. 
And as far as early Rangers go, we cannot forget the immortal 32. 32 men from Gonzales, commanded by Lieutenant George Kimball, responded to William Barrett Travis's call for help, and they uh, referred to themselves as Rangers and entered into the Alamo in the pre-dawn hours on March 1st, 1836, only to die there with the rest of the Alamo defenders. So the immortal 32 from Gonzales are also included in our discussion of the Rangers. So no matter where you think the Rangers actually began, it's obvious that when Texas began to be settled, the necessity for some sort of ranger arose almost immediately. Austin had encountered problems with the Indians uh, that were only compounded as the population grew. The Texans learned really quickly the necessity of becoming rangers and taking that fight to the Indians rather than wait for them to assemble and attack. And whether you consider them official Texas Rangers or not, the men of the 1820s certainly were performing Ranger functions, and they continue to be important even during the actual Texas Revolution. Now, right after the Revolution, when Sam Houston was president, he uh, advocated peace with the Indians. Of course, that didn't last long. It worked in some cases, but most of the time it did not. So the Rangers continued to be important. Well, the Texas Rangers themselves use 1823 as the beginning date. So I think we're going to use that also for Wise About Texas. Now, let me tease a few of the episodes that we're going to talk about. The Texas Rangers are going to play an important part in this podcast going forward. I've sort of broken the dam on the topic, so we're going to go talk about battles. We're going to talk about individual Rangers themselves. And through the entire history of Texas, even before Texas was Texas, the Rangers were working. So we're going to talk about some of the battles during the time period I discussed. I intentionally left them out of this discussion of the beginnings of the Texas Rangers so that we would have other episodes to talk about. We'll talk about the Walnut Creek battle uh, and many of the other pre-revolutionary Indian fights with the Rangers. And then, of course, we've got all the way to 2018 to talk about the many exploits of the Texas Rangers. Since the earliest beginnings of the state, The Rangers have been necessary and effective, and they remain necessary and effective today. And it is the Texas Rangers of today that can trace their lineage back to Stephen F. Austin, who was the father of Texas and the father of the Texas Rangers. Well, now we come to a part of the episode I call Getting There, where I tell you how to find some of the places I talked about in the episode. This episode was a little bit general when it comes to uh, locations. I will tell you about the Walnut Creek Battle in Austin. Uh, Walnut Creek Metropolitan Park in Austin is located at 12138 North Lamar. Um, I looked up in Noah Smithwick's memoirs. Noah Smithwick was there, and he said the battle occurred 10 miles northwest of Austin. And if you go back to what Austin would have been at the time, uh, that park at Walnut Creek is close to the area that Smithwick would have been talking about. When the Indians captured the family that Tumlinson rescued, uh, they would have gone up the Colorado River. And uh, so that's about as good as we're going to get for the actual location of the battle. Um, Another couple of sites that you should visit in connection with the origins of Texas and the Rangers would be Washington on the Brazos State Historic Site in Washington, Texas, uh, which has the Great Star of Texas Museum and mentions the Rangers and has some weapons there from the Rangers. 
Another place that you should go is the San Felipe Historic Site off of I-10 near Sealy in San Felipe, Texas. Uh, they're working on a museum and visitor center, which will open very soon, this spring, I believe. And uh, Brian McCauley and his staff have done a great job on that. Um, you may have heard of the Texas Ranger Museum in Waco. That's always a good spot to go and look for uh, exhibits on the early rangers, and they have the official ranger research library there. And also the former Texas Ranger Association in Fredericksburg, a heritage organization uh, consisting of Texas rangers and their direct descendants, and they have the Texas Ranger Historic Center in Fredericksburg. You can find that at trhc.org and uh, visit them when you're in the hill country. Well, that wraps it up for episode 50, the beginnings of the Texas Rangers. I want to thank everybody for helping this podcast get to 50 episodes. I still can't believe it. We have a Facebook page, Wise About Texas. If you get on Twitter, it's at Wise About Texas. Also at Wise About Texas on Instagram. A couple of the things that I want to incorporate upcoming would include some videos from around the state of Texas. So be patient with me. We're going to work on that. If you get a chance, leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. That helps people find the show. And if you want to support the promotion and preservation of Texas history, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you can support our efforts here. Thanks again for listening. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.